You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Howdy, church. Good morning. Welcome to New Heights. I'm Will. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. Um, We appreciate you guys worshiping with us and coming out and being with us. Um, If you are a first-time guest, I want to stress that we would love to get a Connect card from you. It helps us follow up. Uh, We have a free T-shirt for you, so make sure to give that to one of our volunteers at the tent on your way out. Um, Listen, uh, I know everybody's sad today. The Mountaineers and the Herd both lost yesterday, all right? Um, But I, I need to address how the church handles that because I've learned that there are these crazy people that are Herd fans that love when the Mountaineers lose. And there, yeah, see, and then there are these crazy mountaineer fans that love when the herd loses, and and I just think like it'd be better if we could all just be happy for our state, maybe except when they play each other. But you know, just everybody hates West Virginia anyway, so let's just all come together and be happy, right? Um, but I've realized that's not going to happen, right? We we live in a, a a sports world full of rivalries. I'm actually playing Tom Collins, one of our members in fantasy football today, and we just like cussed at each other during the first service, um, like taunting and smack talking and stuff. Some of y'all are getting really concerned. That was a joke. We were very friendly with one another, but um, come one o'clock, all, all the gloves are off, okay? Um, but, but we live in a time of polarization. Uh, rivalry is, is a very common thing in our culture. And I just, I, I think when I look at the sermon uh, text for today, I think we need to be able to take things that um, are rivalrous and bring them together, like country and Western, right? We can do both, right? Uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. You can't like both those guys in our culture, right? Why can't we just be a fan of the presidency? Um, that's, that's not very popular. You guys remember when Rob Lowe went to a football game and just cheered for football itself, not any specific team? He had, a, he had an NFL logo hat on, just wearing black. Um, I think we might have a picture of it. Yeah, there he is, Rob Lowe, just cheering for football. I just hope the boys have a good time out there. I don't have a particular team I'm rooting for. I'm just rooting for football itself. Um, and so at a, at a time where culture wants to polarize us, um, what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2 today, church, is that the gospel unites us. And if, if I could make a really horrible illustration and con- connect Christianity to Rob Lowe, um, our, our hat would be the gospel hat with a cross on it and say, we're united in this. We can um, agree to disagree on lots of other things, but we, in a time of polarization, need to be united on the one thing that matters, which is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so at our church, we go through books of the Bible. Uh, we're going through the book of Ephesians right now. We find ourselves today in chapter 2, verse 11. And so if you want to grab your Bible, open it up or turn it on, that's where we will be. I've got three sermon points for you today. Uh, Number one, Christ has brought us together. We're going to see that the cross and what Jesus has done for us brings us in the same vicinity, in the same family, in the same kingdom. Secondly, that Christ has given us unity. And so um, oftentimes we we see church splits happen. We see Christians fight with each other. And so I want to show you from this text that the Bible actually calls us to unity. And thirdly, that Christ has made us a refuge. And so he has uh, made our church a refuge that welcomes people people. Um, It's safe here. You're welcome here. You're loved here. And so he's made the church to be that for us. And so um, I want to do a little bit of background work before I get into the actual text. Um, And I want to show you um, really, really kind of the the division 
that was predominant in the first century that Paul was dealing with as he wrote the letter to the Ephesian church. And, and the, and the pr- prominent division was between Jew and Gentile. Now, Jew uh, was, was a, an ethnicity of people, a nationality. Um, and so those who were of Israel and born into the nation of Israel uh, were Jewish. Um, they, had a, they had a word for every other person on earth. They were called Gentiles. Um, in Greek, it's, it's ethna or ethnos. It just means all different types of people. So anyone who's not Jewish uh, was a Gentile. And, and in the church in the first century, you had lots of Gentiles who were believing in the gospel, um, accepting Jesus as their savior and, and, and leaving their pagan religions and becoming Christians. And so what you had uh, happening was all these Gentiles were coming into the church, uh, Jews who were formerly known as, as, um, as adherents of Judaism, uh, they were coming in as well and receiving the Spirit and being baptized. And, um, and then both camps were kind of bringing their cultures and traditions with them. And so you had a lot of rivalry. You had a lot of hostility and discussion on what, how should we live? What should that look like? Okay. Now, Jew and Gentile had never been intended by God to be rivals. Uh, God's intention was to bless all nations, to bring people from all nations to himself. And so Israel was chosen as the first nation as which and through which all other nations would be blessed. That's what God told Abram when he initiated the covenant. But Israel grew hardened and they refused to reach the nations. If you've ever gone to Sunday school or looked through the Old Testament, what you see is is Israel actually becoming very territorial and and racist toward the nations they're supposed to reach. Now there's a lot of evil around them, um, but they hardened themselves to the proselytism they were actually called to. And Jesus calls this out when when he comes to earth Uh, He's born, he grows up in Israel, and when he begins to teach publicly, one of the things he says in Mark 11 is is he calls out their lack of mission and going to the nations. In Mark 11, it says he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And so he's saying, what I originally intended to bless all nations through this nation, you have become exclusive in what you think you've received from God. He also foreshadowed bringing in Gentiles, people from all nations, into his church in John chapter 10. This teaching got got him in some hot water with the Pharisees. In John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This was controversial in Israel uh, to say that, to say that Gentiles would come in, that they would join Israel, become the true Israel of God, and become one flock with one shepherd. That's a description of what the church is, by the way. And so Paul, as he carries out this mission that's given by Jesus in the Great Commission to go and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, Paul goes on missionary journeys. And so he begins to go to nation after nation after nation, traveling around and preaching the gospel and planting churches. And he plants the church at Ephesus. And, and so here we have a letter to the Ephesians as he's writing to a predominantly Gentile area. There aren't a whole lot of Jews in Ephesus, mostly a Gentile church with some Jewish people. And Paul is addressing the division that, that existed and the hostility in their two cultures colliding. Paul actually viewed himself as an apostle, which means sent one, as an apostle to the Gentiles, a, a specific preacher church planter to non-Jewish people, even though he was a Jew himself. In Romans eleven thirteen, 13, he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that 
then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And so I wanted to set up that context so you understand where Paul's coming from when he writes in chapter 2 to Jew and Gentile and how they are to find unity together. And so in point one, we see that Christ has brought us together. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, Pastor Jeremy's mad that I got to preach this Sunday because verse 11 mentions circumcision. If you've ever listened to our church podcast, you know Jeremy brings up circumcision an awkward amount of times. Um, and, I, and I'll tell you, he even goes further than just on our podcast. We'll be in like social settings, hanging out with people. We're supposed to talk about sports or the weather, and he just like brings up circumcision. I'm like, dude, can you stop being so weird? Um, but We've got to deal with it. It's in the Bible, right? That's what Jeremy always says. And so as we look at it, uh, here we have to deal with what is Paul talking about when he says uncircumcision and circumcision? Well, what he's addressing is Jew and Gentile. And when God made a promise to Abram, he promised to bless all nations and to make one great nation out of the man Abram. We see this in Genesis chapter 12. And God tells him to uh, remove a portion of his foreskin, which is circumcision, as a sign of the covenant that God was making. Weird sign, but nevertheless a sign. But what God is doing is he's marking the reproductive organ of his covenant family. And so every time birth happened, they would be reminded because they would circumcise their male children on the eighth day. And so every time birth happened, they were reminded of the covenant. Birth after birth after birth, covenant after covenant after covenant. They're reminded of God's promise. Now in the new covenant, um, Paul compares circumcision to baptism. He says baptism corresponds to it in, in the book of Colossians. And so in the new covenant, circumcision uh, doesn't, doesn't matter that much. And this is what he's addressing with the Ephesians. There doesn't need to be this division among Jew and Gentile because now we have a new sign called baptism. And so instead of at our birth or on the eighth day after we're physically born, we are baptized after we're spiritually born. Remember Jesus told us to be saved, we must be born again. And so now when we have our second birth, when we're born again, um, an Appalachian language, when we get saved, then we get baptized as a sign of that covenant. And so Paul is saying, and he's, and he's kind of addressing from the beginning of this passage, there formerly was a very big division between the two of you, culturally and religiously. That is gone, and now God has made you one group of people that he calls the church with the same covenant, with the same sign of that covenant, and so you are now together. What was formerly separate is now together. And so um, now what we see is that he continues on and he reminds Gentile Christians of where they used to be. Um, and he says that they were uh, godless is, is, is actually what he says in verse 12. He says that you, were, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Now, this doesn't mean that they weren't religious. They were actually, um, they, they were actually polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. One of the ancient seven wonders of the world was the temple of the, the false goddess Diana, and it stood in downtown Ephesus. And so you have uh, these, these new Christians in Ephesus had religion before, but, but even though they had gods that they worshipped, Paul calls them godless. Um, in the Greek, it's, it's atheos. It's where we get the word atheist from. Um, it means no God. 
And so those that believe in no God are atheists. Paul calls these people practical atheists. Though they were very religious, Paul's basically saying they might as well had been atheists because their religion was vanity. It was wrong. It was placed in the wrong place and, and, and the wrong hope. And I, I think if we're not careful, the people around us that we love, or maybe if, if you've not given your life to Christ, maybe you can find yourself to be very religious and very committed to works and very committed to the worship of certain things, but worshiping the wrong things, worshiping things that are not uh, eternal, worshiping things that are false. Um, John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, puts it this way. He says, those who do not worship the true God, whatever may be the variety of their worship or the multitude of laborious ceremonies which they perform are without God. They adore what they know not. And so I want you to think of the things that you toil after, the things that you dedicate hard work and time to. A lot of those things are, are good things, and most idols begin as good things in our life that are elevated to a bad place in our life. You think of your work, you think of your hobbies, you think of the sports teams that your kids are on, you think of the travel, you think of the success that you chase, or you think of the pleasure that you chase. Those things are not wrong in and of themselves, but most idols begin as good things that we elevate to bad places. And so when this happens, what we're doing is we find ourselves guilty of just what the polytheistic Ephesians were guilty of. Well, yeah, we acknowledge Jesus, but we want to worship all these other lowercase g gods as well. You see, empty work toward idols, Paul says, makes us functionally atheistic. Um, that, that there's really no hope found in that. And so verse 12 says that where these Gentiles found themselves, where they were alienated from Israel, they were strangers to the covenant, or, which means promises. They were strangers to the covenant of God, and they were without hope. They were hopeless. And listen, most of us in this room are uh, ethnically Gentiles, not of Jewish descent. Um, all of us before Christ are, are spiritually hopeless in that same predicament. And so verses 11 and 12 really mirror verses 1, 2, and 3 of the beginning of chapter 2 that paints all of creation, all of humanity in this depraved state of unable to help ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But then just like verse 4 comes in with a big butt, verse 13 comes in with a big butt as well. All right, I'm back in the pulpit and so is Sir Mix-a-Lot. All right, my wife told me not to joke about it as much this week. So y'all, if, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, you're just going to miss out on the Sir Mix-a-Lot jokes. But you got to keep up. That's why you got to come to church because jokes bounce from sermon to sermon. Okay. Verse 13 comes screaming in with, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you see, Christ brings us together. God brings us into a family that has a lot of weird cousins, but he brings us into his church collectively to be with one another. And so it's a beautiful picture that, um, of, of what's happening worldwide happens even on a small scale in the local church. And, and here for the Ephesians, they were Gentiles who were far off geographically. They were over 1,100 miles via land travel in ancient um, times from the temple at Jerusalem. God didn't bring them near by bringing them to the temple or getting them ships so they could sail across the 
the sea or getting them horses so they could go on a pilgrimage to the temple. He brought them near by a cross that brought good news to them. And as Christians were persecuted and fled out of Jerusalem, they carried the good news of Jesus' resurrection on their lips. And people far and wide began to hear about the good news that, that all they needed to do was repent of their sin and eternal life was available to them. And Gentile after Gentile after Gentile and family after family and generation after generation began to place their hope in the one true God of Israel who has now uh, revealed himself to the whole world. And he united Christians from around the world and we carry on in that tradition today. And the cross stands at the crux of humanity. Just take a look to your left at these crosses on the wall. It's a visual illustration with a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. The vertical beam being um, this, this, um, this relationship that is repaired in Jesus' work on the cross between man and God and the horizontal beam showing us that we're brought in together, that we have brothers and sisters alongside us in this journey. Not only did Christ bring us together, but he also brought us unity in the cross. It's actually been delivered to us. It doesn't even take work for us to find something in common because we have the most important thing in common, our faith in Jesus. And so point two is Christ has given us unity. Listen, church, um, it is imperative that we get this because the world wants to pull us apart. The glue that holds us together is gospel glue. And the world seeks to polarize us and say, you can't worship with people like that. When you disagree on this issue, it's just too important. You have to disassociate. Man, 2020 was, was rough on pastors, rough on everybody, but um, when you guys see all the gray coming in my beard, that all came in 2020. Like, if you look at a picture of me from 19, man, I was a stud. And then after 2020, it's just, it's just gone steadily downhill after that. Um, but I'll never forget in 2020, you know, with, you know, election year, we're in pandemic, and people are getting fired up, and they're fighting on Facebook because they can't, like, go out and enjoy the sunshine. And, um, and, and I'll never forget on a Monday being told that I was too liberal to be someone's pastor. And then the very next day on a Tuesday, I was told I was too conservative to be someone's pastor. And I remember just putting my head in my hands and praying to God, I can't win. I can't win. If I, if I can't get people to see that the gospel has to be our uniting thing and not where we fall politically or what, what our opinion is on some other issue, that this has, this has to be the unifying thing for the church. In our membership class, we always talk about we are a gospel-centered church. It doesn't mean we don't care about other issues, but it means that the primary issue is the gospel. We get the gospel right. That's what we unite around. As I grew up in Hamlin, West Virginia, small town, and before I knew what a Republican or a Democrat was, I remember there being two Methodist churches in the town I grew up in because of political differences. The same denomination. Matter of fact, when I was a kid in high school, there was a husband-wife pastor duo. Uh, husband pastored one of the Methodist churches in town. The wife pastored the other Methodist church in town. Um, a little bit later when I was a kid, I remember they had the same pastor, and they like flopped their worship times and stuff so he could preach the same sermon at two different buildings. And I, just, I remember like they loved each other, and they like had dinners together and stuff. I'm like, why don't y'all just be... One church. Y'all believe all the same stuff. You share a pastor, all that. And they were just like, well, we've, you know, this has been this way for 100 years. And I, I can tell that story because I, I know a lot of people at that church, and praise God, they came together. They actually sold one of the buildings, built a new building, all came together in one place. And um, it has kind of a happy ending. But sadly, a lot of churches don't have that. They split, they don't plant, 
They begin to look at and major on their differences rather than their unity in the cross. It's a horrible witness to a world that doesn't know Jesus, who looks to us in a world that can't agree on anything. They look to the church and they say, what can you all agree on? And sadly, the reality is, is, is the message the church gives to a lot of people is, we're just as bad off as you guys. We can't agree on anything either. Well, that may be true in most cases, but it's not true in the most important case. In the case of, how do I receive eternal life? How do I live forever? How do I find my eternal purpose and what I was placed on this earth to do? All of that rests in what Jesus did on the cross. We have to agree on that. We have to. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus is our peace. It begins with, for he himself is our peace. So how can I have peace with someone who votes differently than me, lives differently than me, has different opinions than me? It's found in Jesus. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, our primary identity is in the gospel and we agree to disagree on so many other things. But those things still have gospel implications. Gospel implications lead us to evolve and change our thinking on some things and even correct our sinful opinions about some things. And by God's grace, the things that I held to that were wrong, the gospel brings clarity to, and I change my opinions on those things. And that can have political ramifications. It can have racial ramifications, societal ramifications, all those things. But it all stems from the gospel, not those issues. You see, Christ made the peace for us by breaking down our dividing walls. As, he, as, as Paul writes to Jew and Gentile, they were coming from a standpoint, most of the Jews in Ephesus would have formerly lived in Jerusalem. And their church that they went to, their worship service that they gathered every Saturday at, was at the temple. And there was literally a stone wall that divided people by their nationality. There were Jews on one side of the wall and Gentiles on the other side of the wall. Tony Morita, in his, in his commentary, writes it this way um, in, in, in this passage. He says, while Paul was writing this letter, there was a literal wall standing in the temple that excluded the Gentiles. The temple was destroyed physically in A.D. 70, but it was destroyed spiritually around A.D. 33 or so when Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. The implication Paul is making and the case that he's making to the Ephesian believers is give up on that secular division. It's not worth it because you're united in Jesus. You see, we belong to something so much better than the dividing lines that the world draws around us. And Jesus accomplished this crumbling of division wall by fulfilling the Jewish law for the elect for those that he was chasing after to bring into his kingdom. In verse 15, it tells us how Jesus did this. It says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so the law, meaning the Old Testament law and all of its 600 plus commandments, Jesus abolished. Now, does this mean we can just kind of chuck the Old Testament out the window as the church and just focus on the red letters? That's not the case. There are actually a lot of pastors and preachers that do that, and I believe they're throwing out an integral part of what the gospel is because they're throwing out what Jesus actually accomplished for us. We need the law to see what Jesus did 
for us. You see, the Old Testament law could be separated into three main categories. Ceremonial law, which were things like you can't get tattoos, for example. Um, Civil law, which was the um, punishments handed out for various crimes. And then moral law, which the best example of is the Ten Commandments, which tells us what's right and what's wrong. Now, some people would look at this abolishment that Jesus carries out and say, well, he abolished the ceremonial and the civil, but not the moral. I would actually take the case that he abolished all of the law based on the meaning of the Greek word that's translated abolished. It means it's rendered powerless, invalidated, or nullified. It's still useful for us as Christians, but it is taken care of us, taken care for us by by Christ. Um, I, I could explain it this way using the 1999 hit film Double Jeopardy, starring Tommy Lee Jones and Ashley Judd. Y'all remember that one? Um, Basically, the premise of double jeopardy is you can't be tried for the same crime twice. Ashley Judd is convicted of killing her husband, who's not actually dead. And the premise goes that, that in a court of law, since she had already been convicted of killing her husband, she can't be convicted of it again. So famous line in the movie is, I could shoot you in the middle of Times Square and there's nothing anybody could do about it. Well, that's a weird example, but it does show what Jesus did for us. The law of double jeopardy stands in God's system of justice, too. And what I mean by that is because Jesus has drank in the wrath of God and taken on the guilty verdict for us, and we've been rendered not guilty, it means that the law and the penalty of us breaking the law is rendered null and void for us. It's important that we know that. It's important that we know the law, too. Because it shows us God's right and wrong. It shows us what God expects of us. It shows us how we should live. But under the new covenant, in that Jesus has already um, declared us to be not guilty, the law is moral revelation to us, not a moral burden to us. And see, that's the difference between grace and legalism. Legalism says you have to follow this or you will never make it in. Grace says Jesus followed it for you. You're guaranteed to get in. And here's how you live in light of that. You see, again, we see the cross taking care of hostility for us. Vertically, that vertical beam of the cross taking care of the hostility that existed between man and God. God's wrath justly needing to be poured out on sinners. But, but, but Jesus standing in our place in horizontal hostility of all the things we bicker and fight about and draw dividing lines in the sand over, the disunity that exists among humans has been taken care of, and that hostility has been done, with, done away with at the cross as well. And verse 17 says, He came, that's referring to Jesus, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. I love this because it says that Jesus preached peace. Jesus never stepped foot in Ephesus physically. Jesus um, didn't, didn't plant the church at Ephesus. Paul did. And so I found myself reading this saying, what's Paul mean by Jesus preached peace to them? And I, I think about it, if you, like you've ever been to a play where, where I think of like a little kid coming out with like a powdered wig on and he's got a decree from a king and he's got a scroll he's going to read, right? It's always taken, there's usually a trumpeteer with him, you know, there's a decree from the king. And, and everyone takes that decree to just be as effective as if the king himself said it because the, the messenger is reading the king's words. And this is a picture of what we do when we proclaim the gospel to our loved ones who are far from Christ, who need to hear this good news. We uh, proclaim a message from our king. And so as Paul went and proclaimed the gospel, carried out the great commission, the marching orders of King Jesus from the great commission, he declared it in Ephesus. And Paul actually says that Jesus preached peace that way. 
It's a beautiful picture of what we're called to do as the church. And verse 18 shows us our unity in the church as we go on that mission together, that we're unified just as our God is unified in the Trinity. You see Father, Son, and Spirit all in verse 18, which says, For through Him, being the Son, Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So through the Son, we, the church, share the Spirit, and we're adopted by the Father. See, Christ has brought us together, and He's given us unity. And this beautiful good news is that anyone can get in on this. I think sometimes we're, we're surprised or taken back by the people that show up and say, I want, I want Christianity, I want the gospel, I want to be in this church, right? Like, we're like, I don't know about you, given all that you've done, given your lifestyle, given how weird you are, right? There's a lot of weird people that show up at this church. I might not make eye contact as I say that, but that's just the fact, all right? It, it is. But I think we need to remember, Christians, that we're proclaiming a message that is universal. We're, we're proclaiming a message and a call to repentance for every human being. Everyone is, is beckoned to come in. Christ has made us a refuge as the church. It, it, we're a picture of Noah's Ark saying you can be spared from the wrath to come if you just come in to the church. And I'm not talking about coming to a Sunday service. I'm talking about joining the family of God. You see, the ark had limitations. It was only so big. The temple had limitations. It couldn't fit the whole world in it. But all are welcome to come and join Jesus' church. Our church is not restricted by the building. We're, we're buying a new building, but it's not restricted by that size of building, right? We're not restricted by borders. The church is God's people. We're not a boat or a building or a steeple. We are the people of God on mission for his glory. So point three is that Christ has made us a refuge. And we have to remember that it is important for us to beckon people who are in the wrath of God to come into God's family where they can be forgiven of all their sins. Let's finish reading the passage in verses 19 through 22. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so he's saying, you have been built into this safe haven, this refuge for the world, and you are to beckon everyone to come into that salvation. Regardless, right? Like, we got, we got people in our church that love Chipotle. They haven't been sanctified yet, but like God's working on them, right? One day you'll figure out Qdoba's supreme. But, but like, we agree on Jesus. Come on in, right? You can be forgiven of your sin. Well, we can set aside differences and we can be together because God has made us. Uh, Paul uses actually three analogies of what God has made us into. I feel like Jeremy today, but I've got these three sub points to close the sermon. He's made us citizens in God's kingdom. The first one is a kingdom. The second one is a family. He's made us family in God's household. And the third one is a temple. He's made us to be stones in God's temple. So let's look at these three, and then, and then I'll finish the sermon. The first one is he's made us citizens in his kingdom. Verse 19 says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. That just means you're no longer foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. I'll never forget the first time I went to Ukraine. 
Um, I had a nine-year-old passport. It expires after 10 years. I got the passport when I was 20 or when I was 19. So here I am, 28 years old, gained 400 pounds since then, grew a beard. Like I looked totally different. And I was like, oh, that's not expired. I'm not going to go through the trouble of getting a new one. And then I realized when I get to Ukraine, that was a bad idea as I've got this comrade with a machine gun holding up a passport next to my face going, William, eh? And he just doesn't believe it's me. I'm scared to death. He brings over his, like, boss commander guy. He looks like M. Bison from Street Fighter. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced at this point I'm never seeing my family again. I'm about to wet my pants. And, um, and then they, they speak some of them in Ukrainian, and then they bust out laughing because they realize it actually is me that I just got old, right? And so I realize they're just making fun of me. And, um, and I thought about that and how every time I've, I've spent time out of the country, I keep my passport close. More recently, I keep my vaccine card close, right? Identifications on me. And I'm always aware that I'm a foreigner. It's just like never not in the front of my mind that I, I'm not from here. I don't belong here. When uh, Sviatoslav, our, our partner in Ukraine, came and preached here this past December, um, we, we were driving some back road down toward Lewisburg, and we ran into a DUI checkpoint. And that poor guy was scared to death. And I was like, Siava, I don't think you've been drinking anything, bro. And he's like, I haven't. And I'm like, that's all they're doing. They're just going to make sure we're not drunk. I, like, you're good, I promise. And, and he, you know, from his standpoint, he, there's, there's Americans with guns, and he's a foreigner. And it's just, it's just intimidating. It's scary. Well, listen, in the church, Paul's making the case... You're not a foreigner. You're not s- someone like here with a green card. You're not on a temporary visit. You are a citizenship. You've been, you've been granted full rights and citizenship into the kingdom of Jesus. And so no matter what your past is, no matter how sketchy it may be or wherever you came from, you belong here. And your brothers and sisters ought to reiterate that to you. The second thing Paul says is that we're family. Verse 19b says, members of the household of God. You've been adopted. Paul's continuing the language from chapter 1, that we've been adopted by our Heavenly Father into a beautiful family. At the Basham house on Sunday afternoon, you can find um, NFL on the TV playing in the background while mom yells at all of us and we vigorously clean the house. We clean the house on Sundays. We do like a deep clean every Sunday. The main reason for Sunday being the day for that is that's when we have small group. We have group tonight. If any of you guys don't have a group and you want one, it's spaghetti night at our group. I got to clean this afternoon, okay? Um, But what's beautiful about it is every Basham has to get in on that cleaning, Every Basham gets the benefit of being a Basham, and there are lots of benefits that come with being a Basham, trust me. Um, But there are lots of responsibilities that come with that too. They do their chores, they come to the table for dinner, and in the church, we're compared to a family. We all have a responsibility to carry on the mission of God. That means that we give generously. That means that we serve sacrificially. We have our chores and responsibilities as the family of God, and we come to the table for dinner week after week after week. We represent that in communion at our church every week. We have bread that reminds us of what it took for us to be adopted into this family, and we have juice that reminds us of the blood that was poured out at the cross. And so we welcome you, brothers and sisters, to the table today. And we are reminded that the third thing is that we're a temple of God. Verse 22 says, in him, you're also being built, how? Together. Built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit. You see, we're the temple of God. We're his dwelling place. That means there's no lone rangers in Christianity. It just doesn't exist. God doesn't save anyone and not put them in his church. I'm not talking about organizational structure. I'm talking spiritual transaction. Every person who's born again is immediately part of what the Bible calls ecclesia, the church. This is why you're valued and needed for completion. You see these analogies that were given at the end of this passage. None of them work in individualism. None of them. You can't be a kingdom of one citizen. That's not a kingdom. You, any, any kingdom with one citizen is going to be overtaken. I think of like the, the what was it called, the, the Chaz in, out in the Northwest, when the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. We're our own country now, right? That didn't last very long. They didn't have enough citizens. There's no army of a single citizen country. There's no family of one. Your family reunions would suck, right? <laughs> There's no family where you're the only one. That's not a family. That's individualism. There's also no building with just one stone. We call that a rock, not a building. And so all the analogies Paul uses to describe our place in the church are collective. They show us our place where God has placed us with brothers and sisters in Christ where hostility has been killed by the cross. And all that's left is our union to one another rooted in what Jesus accomplished spiritually to reconcile us vertically with God our Father. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.